Well, I too have very much enjoyed the weekend, enjoyed discussing the gospel, enjoyed interacting with some of you, got to meet some new people. And actually this morning I had an interesting, um, interesting, interesting thing happen. I met a young man who uh, I happened to be on the harvest crew with, I believe, 13 years ago. His name is Seth Rhodes. I didn't expect him to be here this morning. I haven't seen him probably since then. Um, so that was very interesting. Um, I wanted to acknowledge this morning that today is Mother's Day, and I hope you're not disappointed if you came to hear a Mother's Day message, and we're looking for that. But as I was thinking about that, you know, this morning we are dealing with the, the applicable nature of the gospel. And, you know, that really has a lot to do with motherhood. And so a lot of the things that we will be discussing this morning apply to you mothers. You moms are, or I should say you have a tremendous, tremendous responsibility. I've never had the privilege of being a mother, but I've had the privilege of witnessing that firsthand because I'm married to one. Um, We have four children, and she has a very, very difficult task. Occasionally I have... I have allowed her to, to go away for one night, sometimes for a weekend recently, or several months ago she went to a, a conference with a friend, and I had to take care of the children. And sometime during that weekend or soon after, I was, I was thinking, you know, I, th- I think I'm doing pretty good. I was kind of feeling good about how I was doing, and then I suddenly realized that, you know, this is what she does every day. And that uh, brought me back down to planet Earth and made me appreciate um, her role as a mother. You know, our world does not, does not value motherhood, unfortunately. And it, it's amazing how we value what is so trivial. Where I work, we are, we are a, a, a dealer. We deal with some, some power equipment like lawn equipment, um, trimmers and and chainsaws and things like that and we have this promotional video playing sometimes or the last several weeks that's promoting the steel product and it's it's some highlights of these things I think they call the lumberjack games or something these guys are these big brawny guys chopping wood and cutting logs in half with chainsaws and and hand saws and 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 climbing these pools that are supposed to represent trees I guess with ropes and, and spikes on their shoes and people are in the audience clapping and cheering. And the other day I was, I was kind of watching that and I thought, you know, maybe what we should have is, is mommy games. You know, you can just imagine that for a second. Two mothers kneeling there, changing a messy diaper, and a three-year-old comes and leaps on their back and grabs hold of them and nearly knocks them down. Or, or maybe racing through the aisle with a, with a grocery cart, you know, filling the grocery list with several toddlers pretending they're firemen hanging on to the side. Um, But no, we don't really want that, obviously, because that would trivialize motherhood. And um, don't ever ever believe that your role as a mother is not important. It is is greatly important. And I also want to recognize that for some of you, Mother's Day may be a difficult day. Some of you have not been able to be a mother for whatever reason, physical reasons, or maybe you're single, and I know that, I'm sure that is, that is probably very difficult. 
But I want to, to encourage you, remind you that God has a very special place for you in the church and in his kingdom. You bring something very unique. So please don't ever think that you don't have value and that, or, or that you don't have a place in the church and in God's plan and that you don't fit in or whatever because you have not been able to be a mother. <clears throat> Turn in your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 4. While you're turning there, I wanted to talk just a little bit about our response as Christians to culture. There's a variety of ways that Christians view culture. To many Christians, we are above culture. We're kind of up here, culture is down here, and we sort of sit up here and scorn culture. To other Christians, they, they are completely against culture. Anything cultural, they oppose. And in essence, they create their own culture within their church. Then there are Christians who simply conform to culture. Whatever culture does, that's what we do. We've referred already to the cheap grace aspect of the gospel. People that feel like it doesn't need to make a difference in your life. Just, just live um, however you would like to live. So some conform culture. But I think the proper response for us as believers is to confront culture. Culture in and of itself is not evil, it's not wrong, but it is so gripped by the fallen world, by sin, that there is much, much evil in culture. So as we go through our lives, the world is going this way, we are going this way, and culture to a large degree follows the world, we will need to confront culture. And one of those ways, and this may seem like a very small and trivial way, but I think it's significant. When I preached this message in, in Mississippi, it was called the Monday Morning Gospel. Um, and, and you all know about Monday mornings. That's a cultural stereotype that we have about a certain day of the week. Um, somebody said that Monday is a lame way to spend one-seventh of your life. Another person said that Monday is what Sundays threw up. You know, so people don't have a high view of Monday. It's not a good day for people. But in order to, to, to have a more healthy view of Monday, I think we need to take a step back and look at our Sundays. Um, kind of retake, maybe, our Sundays. Now, thinking through this, it's, it's a little bit difficult to, to come up with a systematic theology of, of the Sabbath and Sunday, as, as Paul is pointing out, you know, systematic theologians, they kind of fill things in, and I don't want to necessarily do that, but there's some principles we can look at. Um, Mark 2, verse 27, um, Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, we all know that we're no longer under the Old Testament law, and the New Testament is pretty clear in Romans 14 and Colossians 2 that the day itself probably isn't extremely important. There are some that feel like Saturday is still the Sabbath because that's what God established and they say that he hasn't changed it. Uh, they would be the, the Seventh-day Adventist people and, and maybe some others. Um, the New Testament says that it isn't important, but there is this kind of emphasis on the first day of the week. In 1 Corinthians 16.2, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Acts 20, verse 7. Now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, 
Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So there is this emphasis on the first day of the week, and that's what we've done traditionally for a number of centuries, and, and we continue to do today. It should be a day of rest, I believe, and a day of worship. And I won't get into all the, you know, we have grown up in different, in different, with different sets of teachings, what you can and can't do, or should and shouldn't do on Sunday. But it should be a day of saturating ourselves in God-centered, gospel-centered commemoration. It should be a day of preparation for Monday morning. And I think that's kind of the grid that we need to use when we decide what is and is not okay to do on Sunday. There may be other things to, to use to decide that as well, but that's one thing. You know, it's one thing to refrain from buying on Sunday. What about staying up till 1 o'clock in the morning, um, playing games? It may not be what we would consider work, but how are we preparing for Monday morning when we go out into our places of work and we endeavor to live out the gospel? <clears throat> so, Monday mornings are actually an opportunity. Our culture says that Monday is a bad day. But the gospel can even impact our Monday mornings. Even our Monday mornings need to be redeemed. We can demonstrate that a life of passion for the glory of Christ is a much better alternative than the typical Monday morning misery. Let's read Colossians chapter 4. Three, and then I'm going to read verse, chapter 4, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. <clears throat> and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are, are earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men." knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as, re as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. <clears throat> so we're dealing with the applicable nature of the gospel this morning. And as I was thinking about this message, I thought, well, maybe I'm kind of preaching to the choir. Because traditionally, we as, as Mennonites have been really practical people. We believe in applying what we believe to our lives. But when you, when you take kind of a bird's eye view of, of church history, um, and I'm not an expert, but, but when you look at church history and you look at the Reformation several hundred years ago. The Reformation was a time when several very courageous men were calling the church back to doctrinal purity, back to biblical soundness. But then there were these men known as the radical reformers who not only believed that the church needed to be called back to doctrinal purity, but that that purity needed to make a difference in the way they lived. And to this day, that still has had a certain amount of impact. Today, Anabaptists still believe that our values need to make a difference in our lives in very practical ways. We have held to certain aspects of practical living that are extremely important to us. My fear, however, is that in one sense of the term, we have, we have become like the Ephesian church in the book of Revelations that... The Apostle John said, you, you are doing, in essence, he said, you are doing the right things. You are striving for purity in your church. You are scorning false doctrine, but you have left your first love. So we do, we do many really practical things, whether on the conservative side of Anabaptism or the, the more liberal side of the spectrum. On the conservative side, it's, it's more of a, a dress, the kind of activities and technologies we, we shun. On the liberal side, it's, it's more of an involvement in activism and, and activism and promoting social justice or world peace. But it, it plays itself out in very practical living. And the, there is truth. And there are good things in both sides of the spectrum. God is concerned about our holiness. He is concerned about the poor. He is concerned about violence. But when these things get separated from the gospel, then we have lost something vital. It means our affections have changed. We may be doing the right thing, but we're doing it for the wrong reason. Paul is saying to the church at Colossae, if your life has been impacted by the gospel, if you have died and been raised with Christ, then set your affection on things above. Seek the things of God. As Linford was saying on Friday night, behold your God. Behold his glory. 
And you know, I find in my life that it's, it's a constant struggle to keep my affection on things above. I tend to want to make this earth my home. But when we allow ourselves to become enamored, captivated by the grace of Christ, we will continue to have our eyes open to the beauty of his glory. And this will make an impact on our everyday lives. It will change you in some very practical ways. So we can't divorce Sunday from Monday or the rest of the week. It's not just about Monday. It's about 24-7. So living the gospel-centered life is putting away what is earthly. Fornication, I believe the King James says. Uncleanness. Passion. Now this is not talking about passion in a good way. There is a good kind of passion. But the wording used here is, is... translated in the King James Version as inordinate affection. It's like passion gone wrong. Passion for the wrong kinds of things. Evil desire. Translated evil concubiscence in the KJV. It's a longing, especially for what is forbidden. (coughs) Covetousness, which it describes as idolatry. Idolatry is not just something that the children of Israel faced in the Old Testament. It is a serious problem in our world today. And even in our churches. Our golden calves are still here. They've just changed shape. One of the most popular television series today is called American Idol. Now, the name is bad enough, but the, but the worst issue is, is the way that people are just engrossed. They're enamored with entertainment. Um, you know, and, and, and there's just, it's just all around us. We get so caught up in these things. Um, the biggest churches in the South are the football stadiums where there's a lot of worship that happens on the weekends. Um, and, and, and I know, I've, I've been there. Um, I enjoy sports. I enjoy playing them. Not nearly as much as I used to, but I still do. Uh, but I used to let that determine how much I enjoyed life. Penn State won, I had a good week. They lost, I had a bad week. And then one day I began to slowly realize that I I really had absolutely nothing to do with the outcome of this game. And isn't it a little bit foolish to allow that to determine my joy? Idolatry creeps in and we need to be careful lest we think that it's just out there and ignore that idols creep through the doors of our otherwise sanctified homes and churches. It can be anything, anything we covet. Covetousness is idolatry, whether it's money, power, the praise of men, adventure, you name it. We can idolize it. John Calvin said the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is from his mother's womb expert in inventing idols. He also said the evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. So we can take many things, including good things, and make them idols in our lives. So this first list of sin is what I would call disorders of desire. Now, I'm not referring to disease like the psychological world would, but there's these desires, there are these longings for evil. And it says, this is why the wrath of God is coming. God is just. And he's going to do something about people who live like he doesn't exist. 
He's going to take care of evil and rebellion. And, and, and Paul is saying this is the pattern that we once walked in. This is how we lived. But now it's time to get rid of it. It's time to put it away. He goes on with the list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, anger. He's referring to a violent passion. Indignation, vengeance, wrath, similar. Passion as if breathing hard. This is, this is, this is a, um, a fierceness, an indignation, malice. One definition for malice was just badness, just evil. Blasphemy is in, in the King James, it's, it says blasphemy in the ESV. It's translated slander, which it can be translated either as vilification especially against God, but it also can be against others. Um, evil speaking, railing, filthy language. It's pretty self-explanatory. It can be dirty jokes. It can be coarse talk. Um, vile conversation. We need to put that away. It says, do not lie. Be honest. Once again, we see the word passion, but again, it's passion for the wrong things. You just get this picture of, of evil pouring forth from unregenerate human beings. The question is, have I been regenerated? We all struggle with sin, but is there growth in my life? Can I look at my life and see growth? If I can't see any growth from five years ago, that's a problem. Um, that needs to be taken very seriously. These are the kind of sins that divide. They separate people from God, separate people from one another. So then the opposite of that is putting on what is godly. So put off the old man, put on the new man. It's like changing clothes. We have a new identity in Christ. Romans 6 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to obey its passions. Do not present your member to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. So we need to make our actions match our clothes. Paul is saying if you're a Christian, act like a Christian. The new man is being, form, being conformed into the image of, of its creator. And there is no racism, no classism in the kingdom of God. Barbarians is one thing he mentions. You know, that term has a very negative connotation. It's someone who, in, in that time, it was someone who didn't speak Greek and was thought to be uncivilized. Somebody who was scorned. And then he goes a step farther. A Scythian... They were known especially for their brutality. They were considered by others as little better than wild beasts. They came from what is South Russia. They were the barbarians, barbarian. So he, he, he's saying, you know, there, there are no, there's no class structure. There's no barbarians, no Scythians, no circumcised or uncircumcised. There's no racism. What binds us together as believers no matter what our background, our class, our socioeconomic status, our race, our level of intelligence, 
or our education is the fact that Christ is all and is in all. And our one common unifying factor, excuse me, unifying goal, is that we make much of Him. We are to put on tender mercies. Translated in the ESV, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, which is patience. A stark, stark contrast from what we are to put off. And then he says, forgive as you have been forgiven. When, when Scripture speaks of forgiveness, it almost always speaks of it in relation to, the, to us forgiving because we have been forgiven. I know there's just a plethora of books out there that will tell you you need to take these 10 steps to forgiveness or, or you need to go through this process to forgive. And I'm not saying there's not some helpfulness in there, but the, the scriptural view of forgiveness is understanding that I myself, in and of myself, am a despicable, wretched, ungodly, evil person, and it's only because of Christ that I can have grace and forgiveness. Therefore, if I understand that, nothing anybody ever does to me is something that I can't forgive because of the forgiveness that I have received. If I have trouble forgiving, it's because I don't understand how much I have been forgiven. <clears throat> Love is greater than all of these virtues. It binds them together. And then he goes on, he talks about there should be this distinct peacefulness about a Christian. It should be part of who we are. Now, this is not a personality thing. You see some people that you would describe as more peaceful than others. Um, but, but, but I believe it's, it's, it's this deep-seated stability that comes from an unshakable faith, the faith of a person whose mind is stayed on Christ. It should govern our response to others. Um, I, I read somewhere that this wording, it, when translated it, it, in our modern language, would, would be best translated. It's like an umpire at, at a game. You know, the umpire, he doesn't control the outcome of the game, or at least he shouldn't, but he, he controls the game to a certain degree. This peacefulness controls our response. It controls how we live. Um, it helps us when we face difficult circumstances, difficult situations. It governs our response. We should be saturated by God's Word, regularly challenging and encouraging one another, singing together. Singing is one way of teaching and admonishing, and I appreciate this weekend the focus we have on, on singing. Um, oral tradition was extremely important in the early church. That's one way they preserved Christian doctrine because they sang it together. And singing should still be a way for us to be nurtured and taught and admonished together. If we don't pay attention to the words in our songs, we're not doing this. Um, we are merely having an emotional experience that may or may not feel like worship. And this is why it is important that we use songs that are full of sound teaching and sound doctrine. 
And then it mentions having grace in our hearts toward God. What does that mean? I believe the best way to describe that is thankfulness. Um, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through him. The essence of worship and service is a heart of gratitude. It's what separates worship from ritual and service from legalism. We should be doing what we're doing because we are extremely grateful people for what God has done. And then it gets into homes, and I know I'm kind of skimming over the surface here. You go much deeper, but there's so many things in this, in this chapter. It gets into gospel-centered homes. What are the roles? And we already touched on this in the, in the marriage class this morning. But wives are to submit. They're to keep themselves in that complementary role of submitting to their husband. Husbands are to love their wives and not be harsh with them. So if you're ever tempted to wrongly use Scripture to get your wife to do what she wants because she's supposed to submit to you, here's clear instruction. Do not be harsh. Children, obey your parents. Disobedience to parents is the antithesis of the gospel-centered life. Fathers, do not provoke your children. How do you provoke your children? There's many ways, many ways to provoke our children to wrath. When, when we allow anger into our homes, I believe, is, is one of the big ways. Anger destroys homes. The gospel-centered life thinks more about the good of my children than my own comfort and convenience. Trust me, this is difficult. My wife and I are in the thick of this. Um, waking up in the middle of the night because a child is crying and, and is scared um, or is sick and is throwing up all over the place. You know, those are times when, when um, the worst can be brought out in us if we're not careful. Um, raising children, I was talking to Roy, raising children is progressive sanctification. It's, it helps us to learn a lot of things. <coughs> and back to, to Mother's, Je- Mother's Day, just... Um, I wanted to mention that I found that there's not a lot of verses in the New Testament specifically about motherhood, but these verses apply to motherhood. Um, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Um, if you put those things on, it will greatly, greatly um, benefit you as a mother. And then Paul goes into a topic that we may think is not relevant to us. He begins to talk to slaves. And he tells them to obey their masters. Now this is a very touchy subject today. Um, He says, Obey your masters not to please men, but because you fear God. And then he talks to the masters, and he says, Masters, treat your servants justly and fairly. This is ultimately for the same reason as the slave is supposed to obey his master. Why? knowing you have a master in heaven. So we have this gospel-centered motivation for the change that takes place in our lives. We are not to be people-pleasers, but we are to live to please the Lord. You are serving the Lord Christ. This is the ultimate motivation. I doubt I'm speaking to any slaves this morning. But the point is this. Paul is not endorsing slavery. He's not saying it's okay to own slaves. But he is pointing out that no matter what position you find yourself in, 
no matter how unjust or unfair it is, you have an opportunity to glorify your maker by living a life that is motivated by love and service to him. We as Christians have a reason to get up in the morning, no matter what we're facing. We are living for something infinitely greater than the American dream. We are motivated, or should be motivated, by the gospel. Now think about what motivates other people in our world today. Capitalistic success. Um, Getting ahead financially. Gaining favor with the right people so that I can get a job promotion or so that I can you know, be in th- this circle, this um, standing of society, living the good life. Some people even use the gospel to, to try to live the good life. So what motivates you? What motivates you to get up in the morning? You see, every decision, every dilemma, every situation, every difficult circumstance is an opportunity to magnify the risen Christ. We are to be clothed with the new man. The gospel needs to make a difference in our lives. You know, the business world has learned this, that a life of service is a really good way to make money. People will absolutely bend over backwards with kindness and long-suffering if they feel that the person they are serving is of monetary value to their business. I've seen that firsthand, maybe even done that a time or so. Um, But what motivates us? Is our action matching our clothes? Let me back up a little bit. I was going to give this example. um, In his book, Love and Respect, Emerson Egrish was asking a man, or, or he poses the question to husbands, you know, he, he tells them they need to, to love their wives. And a husband will say something like, I can't. I just, I can't love her. She, I, it just, it's impossible. He says, if I gave you a million dollars to love her for two weeks, to be kind to her, caring to her, love her for two weeks, could you do it? Well, for a million dollars, probably could. So the point is, we don't lack an ability. We lack motivation. So what is our motivation? Are your actions matching your clothes? The gospel needs to make a difference in the way we respond. As I was preparing for this message, before I gave it in Mississippi, I was driving through Tuscaloosa. I was was, um, running a work errand, and and I came up to this red light, and there were these vehicles coming the other way, turning in front of me. They had the green arrow, and they were turning. And the first two vehicles were two really old people, and they went really slow through the intersection. And everybody behind them obviously had to go slow as well. And they went so slow that the light changed to orange and then to red, and the line just kept going. And we were sitting there. Our light was green. The cars were still going in front of us. And the guy beside me just became irate. I mean, he just he started shaking his fist, making obscene gestures, and he actually drove forward toward them and slammed on the brakes before he hit them. He was just angry. And uh, thankfully, I was thinking about this message. Um, But I thought, you know, does that really help you have a better day? Does that really make you feel better? 
Because we live in an angry world. People get angry a lot. Our natural cultural response is to defend ourselves, to blame, to tell people off, give them a piece of our mind. Um, Back when the Republican primary was still going on, I I read that, that the reason Mitt Romney was winning is because he had learned that he needs to either kill or be killed. He had learned the killer instinct. Politicians who refrain from negative campaigning don't win campaigns, hardly ever. But we as gospel-centered people need to be different. Matthew 5.16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. So the opposite of that, if we don't do that, if we don't have good works, is the name of God is, is blasphemed. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. I recently heard an interview of, of somebody on the radio was interviewing Johnny Erickson Tata. She's been a quadriplegic since she was a teenager. Recently, they just found out she has breast cancer. And in this interview, she said something to, to the effect that she just doesn't want to do anything that would mar the name of Christ. <clears throat> and you know, I thought, hmm. You know, I get angry at my children sometimes when they don't want to go to bed. They spill their drink at the supper table. They make my life less convenient. Makes me angry. I'm ashamed. I want to put off the new man. I want to put him to death. I want to put on the new man. Do your actions match your clothes? Are you even wearing the right clothes? Does the life-transforming power of grace impact you, the way you live, and how you respond? Do you allow the gospel to shape every decision, every dilemma, and every situation? On Tuesday, on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us this incredible gift of the gospel. And that although the reason we are primarily thankful for this gift is that it brings us in in back into communion with you. It gives us salvation. It gives us eternal life. But it also impacts us each day. Or should impact us each day. And Lord, I just pray that you would help each of us to become so enamored by your grace, by your love, by your goodness, by your kindness, by what you have done for us. That we would live with hearts of gratitude. That the decisions that we make, no matter how mundane or great they are, would be affected by this gratitude, by the gospel. Continue to be with us this morning and, and this evening. Help us to honor you. Help us to worship you in all that we do and say. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.